So I want to start reading at verse 26 of Acts 21. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. So let's just stop, give ourselves a little bit of context. We know that Paul has been wanting to go back to Jerusalem. He wants to be there for the Feast of Pentecost, and he has a great burden for his Jewish brethren. He has an inexplicable burden, so much so that everywhere that he goes, when he stops in to visit the churches and the saints, they all tell him the same thing. Trouble is awaiting you in Jerusalem, Paul. Agabus the prophet took his belt, bound, him with, bound his hands and feet, and said, this is what's going to happen to the owner of the belt in Jerusalem. And uh, Paul, being a man of great conviction, said, I'm ready to lay my life down if I need to in Jerusalem. So the church basically said a very wise thing. When we saw that Paul couldn't be persuaded, we said, well, the will of the Lord be done, which is really where we should all come to uh, when we're making decisions is seeking the will of God. We also know that when Paul got there, he brought a great report of all that had been done in the Gentile churches. And the Jewish brethren rejoiced, but they said, Listen, just so that people know that you are not against the Jews or against the temple, why don't you take a vow of purification with four other men, and maybe that will help you gain an audience with the Jewish people. Paul did that. It had nothing to do with salvation. It was probably a Nazarite vow of purification. And so Paul now, at the end of seven days, is going back into the temple with these men, to wrap up this vow that he had taken. Verse 27, Now when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law and this place. And furthermore, he has also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trumpheus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And all the city was disturbed, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. Now, as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. He immediately took soldiers and centurions, and he ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains. And he asked who he was and what he had done. And some among the multitude cried one thing and some another. So when they could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. When he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people followed after, crying out, Away with him. Paul uh, had taken this vow. Uh, this process of purification uh, required people to visit the, uh, twice, on the third day and on the seventh day. And 
As Paul is coming on the seventh day, the day is almost over, but they encounter some enemies, the Jews. And they probably saw Trumpheus. Uh, these Jews probably were in town themselves from Ephesus. They recognized Trumpheus. They figured that Paul had brought in a Gentile into the court, into the temple courts, which was prohibited. And so they started a riot. Now, Paul's accusers didn't have any facts. They just certainly had passionate feelings and prejudice, and they stirred up the whole crowd, and they laid hands on them. So we have a crowd that's been stirred up into a mob. They have no facts. They just have passionate feelings, and they make three false statements about Paul in our text. Number one, he says that he teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place, the temple. That wasn't true. It says that he had brought Greeks into the temple, and thirdly, that he had defiled the holy temple by doing so. Verse 30 says, all the city, all the city was disturbed, and they seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple and shut the doors. I haven't seen a church that's been so effective that it's disturbed all of the city to the point where they've dragged the pastor out of the pulpit and locked the doors. I'm not sure I want to be that guy, but that is an effective ministry when it happens. It says that as they were seeking to kill him, the Roman garrison and took commanders, brought his troops, and it says when they came upon the scene, it says that they had stopped beating Paul. You need to get a, a contextual understanding of what's going on here. This mob was so incensed with the Apostle Paul that they wanted to kill him, and they were beating him when the Romans arrived to rescue him. And the violence of the mob could hardly be restrained, so much so that they had to actually carry Paul and protect him to get him away from the crowds. Now, as I was reading this narrative, we could read it together and we go, okay, Paul got arrested, he got beaten up, and he was saved by the Roman garrison. Lovely historical narrative. But what I've been trying to do as we go through the book of Acts is I've been trying to kind of peel back the, the narrative and look at the underlying story of what's going on. And, you know, what was really interesting is, is that before we even made this announcement, to really go online with our services because of the coronavirus, this message had already been prepared. So everything that I'm about to tell you today is not something that I prepared in view of the coronavirus. It's something that I had already prepared, and these decisions to go online with the service were made. And I'm amazed at how God works everything together because... Here's what I would like to ask you as we read this narrative together. What was Paul thinking when he was getting beat upon by this mob who wanted to murder him? What was he thinking as these people came upon him? Oh, thanks a lot, God. Here I am doing your will, and I get arrested once more, and I'm getting beat to a pulp. Things certainly are not going as well as one could hope for. We could agree on that. 
And as a matter of fact, this passage marks a major transition in the life and ministry of Paul. Because from here on in, in the book of Acts, Paul is going to be a prisoner. And he's not going to be a free man. Now, here's what I know about the Apostle Paul when I read his letters to the churches. I believe that Paul's convictions gave him a much bigger picture than the moment of trial that he was enduring. Let me say that again. I believe that Paul's convictions gave him a much greater perspective about what was going on than what he was enduring in the present moment. How do I know that? How do we know that? Because we have a book called the Bible, and when we read the letters to the churches that Paul wrote, he often talked about his chains and his imprisonment and all of the things that he endured in the ministry um, as it related to the big picture. Let me give you a few examples. The first thing is, is that Paul and Silas preached the gospel way back in Acts ch uh, chapter 16. And we know that there was a riot there, that they were arrested, they were beaten, and they were thrown into the deepest part of the jail. We also know that as they were singing and praising God at the midnight hour, that God orchestrated a divine earthquake, opened their cells, and their chains fell off. Now, it's really interesting to me when I think about this because God works in different ways at different times. In Philippi, God orchestrated a divine jailbreak, but he didn't do it this time. There was no miracle, and there was no jailbreak. But I do believe that Paul knew that God was in control because he could think back that he could be thrown into jail and God orchestrated a number of miracles and broke him out of jail. Secondly, when I read the letters of Paul, I'm always amazed at how, how Paul viewed himself. To the Ephesians in chapter 3, verse 1, he wrote, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. In Ephesians 4, 1, he says the same thing. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling which you were called. In 2 Timothy 1.8, Paul writes to this young man and he says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. But share with me in the suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. In the book of Philemon, twice he writes to Philemon in verse 1 and in verse 9, and he says this, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, in verse 9, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Why do I give you all of these examples? Because the apostle Paul never saw his chains or his imprisonment as man's chains. Paul always saw himself as a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you find that encouraging? Don't you find that challenging? 
I would ask you today a really simple question. In all the circumstances that you're going through, in all of the trials that you're facing, do you see yourself as a prisoner of Jesus Christ or a prisoner of your circumstances? Paul never saw himself as a prisoner of Rome, and he never introduced himself or said that about himself. Every time that Paul wrote a letter from the Roman jail, he always called himself a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ, or that he was in chains for Christ, or that he was in prison for Christ. And so I would ask myself, and I would ask you today, whose prisoner are you? Are you a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ? Or are you a prisoner of circumstance? And how you answer that question has a lot to do about how you'll see life and how you'll see God. Now, if you have your Bibles open at home, I want you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Because this is probably one of the most incredible views or insights into the Apostle Paul's heart. If you read the book of 2 Corinthians, it's almost like Paul's autobiography. In this book, Paul shares his heart. He basically opens up uh, his life, and he tells us a lot about the hardships and a lot about the trials that he went through but then he gives us his perspective. Now, if you are in 2 Corinthians 4, would you look at verse 1? Look at what he writes. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. What an amazing statement that Paul made. And I'll tell you why it's amazing, because if you look down at a few verses, a few verses, look at, what the, look at the cost of ministry, starting at verse 7. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. Look at what Paul said about his ministry. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. He says, we are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. Look at verse 12 for a perspective. So then, death is working in us, but life in you. Drop down to verse 16. Here's the summary of what Paul would say about the ministry that he received from the Lord and everything that he has gone through. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart. Says it twice in this chapter, in verse 1 and now in verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Why? Even though the outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a more exceeding 
an eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. What a perspective to have in life, to have victory over the circumstances that we find ourselves in, the challenges that come our way day by day by day. I'm going to talk a little more about this later, but before we learn to trust God in all things, we have to ask ourselves a few questions. They're searching questions and they're deep questions. Is God really in control today? How much control does God have? If he's not in complete control, then who or what is? And lastly, <clears throat> how can I learn to trust God who says he is con in control and rest in that? I think it's clear from the scriptures and from the teachings of the Apostle Paul that yes, the Lord is really, 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 really in control. To the believers in Rome, Paul wrote this great verse. It's in chapter 8, verse 28. And it says, We know all things work together for the good to those that love God, to those that are called according to his purpose. To the church in Thessalonica, he wrote this, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. If you're taking notes, that's 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 16 to 18. He said that he could give thanks and that we should give thanks in everything. We don't give thanks for all the bad things. It just says that we know that God is in control and therefore we can give thanks in everything. In verse 24 of that same chapter, he says to the Thessalonians, he who calls you is faithful and also will do it. To the Philippians, he wrote in uh, chapter 1, verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. One of the great examples of knowing that God is in control and that we can trust him in our circumstances is a young guy by the name of Joseph. Now, in the Old Testament, we know the story of Joseph, it begins in Genesis 37, and it goes right to the end, chapter 50. We know that a young man named Joseph had jealous brothers, and that he was thrown into a pit by them. They wanted to murder him, but instead they relented, and they pulled him out of the pit, and they sold him into slavery. It was there that he was taken down into Egypt, and at the age of 17, he was sold into Potiphar's house. There, Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him, and when he uh, ran from her again and again and again, this jealous wife accused him of basically trying to rape her, and then he was sent unjustly to prison where he, consider, uh, where he spent a considerable amount of time. While he was in prison, we know that Pharaoh had a dream. We also know that Joseph was uh, brought out of prison, that he interpreted Pharaoh's dreams, and that he was exalted to be the second man, uh, the second <coughs> under Pharaoh in all the land. 
the second most powerful person in all the land. We know that God orchestrated a, uh, a famine and that uh, Jacob set, uh, told his sons to go down to Egypt to buy grain lest they perish and starve to death. Now, here is where I want to pick up the story. It's in Genesis 45, and it starts in verse 4. His brothers had come down a second time to buy grain. And it says when they came, Joseph said to his brothers, please come near to me. So they came near. And, they, and Joseph said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now... <clears throat> Do not, therefore, be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Get what Joseph said. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years, the famine has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. Now, this was Joseph's perspective, looking back on his life. Verse 7. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. What an incredible perspective to have about life when challenges and circumstances seem to be suggesting the exact opposite that God is in control. You know, Peter, on the day of Pentecost, stood up and declared something very, very uh, unique and very uh, powerful about the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. He said to the crowd that gathered in Acts 2, verse 23, that the Holy Spirit said of the Lord Jesus that he was delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Even the suffering of our Lord Jesus, his crucifixion and his shame was planned out by God so that the world could be saved through him. It wasn't the Romans that were in control. It wasn't the Pharisees that were in control. It wasn't Pilate that was in control. It wasn't Judas that was in control. And it wasn't any man. It was all foreordained exactly as God said it, that it would be from the very foundation of the world so that through the circumstantial sufferings of Christ, the world could be saved and know the Lord. You see, God is unlimited in power. He is unrivaled in majesty. And he will not be thwarted by anything or anyone outside of himself. Our God today is in complete control of all our circumstances, causing them or allowing them for his own good purposes and plans to be fulfilled exactly as he ordains. And so I have one other question for you today. Do we trust God? That he, uh, that he is who he says he is and that he is in control. It's easy to say, oh yeah, God is in control. And then go and make a $5,000 run on toilet paper. We can trust someone. Well, let me put it this way. We cannot trust someone that we don't know. 
And there is only one way that we can actually know God, and it's through his word. There's no magic formula to make a spiritual giant overnight. There's no mystical formula or mystical prayer that we pray three times a day that is going to mature us or build our faith and make us power of tower, or towers of power or strength or confidence. There is the Bible, the single source of power that will change our lives from inside out. And if we drink deeply of God's word and we let it fill our hearts and our minds, the circumstances of life will come through the filter of God's word. It doesn't mean that we won't have times of fear. It won't mean that we don't have times of concern. It won't mean that we're impervious or bulletproof to everything that comes our way. But it will become clear to us that God is in control and that we can trust him. The other thing that I'd like to say, thirdly, about Paul's view of his circumstances is that when we read Paul's letter, not only was he absolutely sure that God uh, was in control of his chains, but that the chains never did not hinder the gospel. You know, in Ephesians 6, 19 and 20, Paul wrote this. He said, pray for me that the utterances may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to know the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in it I may boldly uh, speak as, uh, as I ought to speak. That in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Paul said, I'm an ambassador in chains. What an amazing statement. In Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 14, he says, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. That's an incredible statement. Because a lot of things happened to the Apostle Paul. More things have happened to the Apostle Paul than have ever happened to you or I. And it says, he says, these things that happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. Can you imagine? Every Roman soldier that was chained to Paul 24-7 was hearing the gospel. Hey, uh, have you heard what Paul has been talking? Yeah, I've been chained to him 24-7. I've heard about Jesus from the moment he's come to be a prisoner in the palace. I wish they'd set the guy free. He's preached to the whole, whole, uh, the whole Roman army. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. Paul writes, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to, the, to my gospel, for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains, but the word of God is not chained. Therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. What a perspective to have. Do you know the other thing that happened is that we would not have the book to the Ephesians, the Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon because all four of those books were written because of Paul's imprisonment and while he was in a Roman prison. Not only that, as we go through the book of Acts from this point on, 
Paul is going to have six different occasions in which to share his testimony because he is in chains. He's going to do it in a few verses here. He's going to share or try to share his testimony with this unruly mob at Jerusalem. In chapter 22, he's going to share his testimony with the Sanhedrin. In chapter 24, he's going to share his testimony with Felix. In chapter 25, he's going to share it with Festus and then again with Herod Agrippa. And then in chapter 28, he's going to share it with the Jews in the city of Rome. All because of his chains and his imprisonment. Because God cannot be chained, nor can the word of God be imprisoned. Now, I want to just close today by basically giving you a few exhortations. First of all, we're living in a world that circumstantially is being affected moment by moment by this coronavirus. Uh, here we are online. It has circumstantially affected us. We're not here today as the people of God. We're here uh, broadcasting to you in your homes and around the world <laughs> the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Circumstances are affecting the world today. Fear is a great reality for a lot of people today. Uh, yesterday, I opened my computer and I went to the National Post and I read the headlines. Here were a few of the top stories. Right across the top, Canada may soon be completely out of, of control uh, because of COVID-19. Dire possibilities could dramatically change Canada. I, I thought that happened during the last election, but apparently it's taken COVID-19 to get our attention that Canada might soon be completely out of control. Secondly, President Donald Trump declares national emergency. Uh, all flights now uh, have been grounded out of Europe. For those of us who live in Canada and wanted to go on holidays, a lot of you probably have had to cancel because one of the uh, headlines was that four major cruise lines have shut down all their ships. The other thing that I read is, is that the coronavirus has put the wedding industry on edge. Apparently, no one is responding to their invites. But the one that caught my attention and was my favorite was, of course, down at the very bottom, there was a picture of a couple in their mid-60s, and they were smiling, and they had their arms around each other, and it had this caption. These Canadians who caught the novel cor uh, coronavirus say they barely knew they were infected. I'm not sure where the line is drawn in the proverbial sand, we don't want to make light of such things because that's why we took this decision to protect you from basically catching this thing. And so here we are today. But I would like to encourage you with a few thoughts as I close this morning. First of all, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, Paul wrote, 
For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. I'd like to say to you that just as Paul viewed his chains and circumstances from God's point of view, that should also be our point of view as well. And it should leave us with some foundational truths that we all know, but I should just refresh your minds with before we go. And that is, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He's not surprised. He's not sitting up in heaven, chewing on his uh, celestial fingernails, wondering what to do with this world. Nothing has overwhelmed him. There's nothing that's happening in this world that he has been taken surprised by. He is completely in control of the situation, and we should take great comfort in that truth. And therefore, we should not have a spirit of fear, but we should have confidence in the power of God to work out all things with, for his plan and his purpose. What is one of those plans? Well, I would suggest to you today that God uses adversity to get people's attention. God uses adversity in our lives to give us perspective. One of the realities about problems, one of the realities about adversity is the things that we think are so important to us and that we will invest in and give copious amounts of time and money to, we realize they're not worth a hill of beans. And one of the things that this coronavirus does is it shows us really how little control we have of this thing called life. Now, we like to think we're in control. And, you know, we know that there is a lot of wisdom invested in trying to keep control of things. Because, say, for instance, if you're a parent, you have to control the environment that your kids are in. You want to protect them. You want to provide for them. You want to make sure that where they're going and what they're doing is as safe as possible. That's wisdom. You try to control it. Uh, for those of you that are investing and getting ready for retirement, uh, you're trying to use wisdom so that you have a sense of control that when you retire, that you have a plan going forward. That's wisdom. Uh, there are so many areas of our life that God has told us to try and bring some type of control to. But in the big picture, when we think about it, things like this really remind us how little control we really have. Now, I don't know if that causes you great trepidation and concern or whether it just causes you to go, yep, that's absolutely true, and I put my trust in Christ, and therefore, I'm good. Because one of the things that adversity and trouble brings is purifying. It gets rid of a lot of the dross in our lives. Now, let's just say that the coronavirus was so absolutely severe that it was like the bubonic plague. Thanks for, thanks for watching. Uh, but, but what would you be thinking that really is important in your life right now? Would you think that, that all of the stuff that you're holding and juggling is really the most important thing in life? Or would you think more about your eternal perspective? Would you think about your loved ones? Would you think about 
where you will end up? Would you think about those things? Would you think about investing in eternity? Because as Paul already pointed out in 2 Corinthians 4, he goes, all of this stuff that's happening to me, I count it but light affliction. Because all of this is just temporary. It's going to pass away. And in other places in the Bible, it says it's going to be like the flowers of the field. It's here one day, it's gone the next. It's like a vapor that appears, and it's gone. So one of the things that this adversity gives us is a perspective. And not only to us as Christians, but the third thing I'd like to say is it's giving us an opportunity to share the good news of Christ's love for people. Because in times like this, people know there's no answer in the world. There's no lasting security in the world. And so I have a scripture that I'd like to share with you this morning, and it's found in Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24. It says, Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, nor not, uh, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, and that I am the Lord, exercising love and kindness, judgment and righteousness on the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. Adversity tells us what exactly is important and what isn't. And Jeremiah, the word of Jeremiah from the Lord says, look it, do you really want to glory in anything? Then glory in this, that you know that I'm the Lord. Because your beauty is going to fade. Your money is going to run out. Your strength will deplete. That's just the facts of life. But the Lord remains forever. And so adversity not only purifies us, but it gives us opportunity to share the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, that there are answers, that you can trust in the Lord. And lastly, I'd like to tell you the great scripture, the underlying scripture that has comforted so many Christians through the ages and continues to comfort you and I, Romans 8, 28. For all things work together for the good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. Amen? We're going to ask the worship team to come up, and we're going to close in a song, and as they do, I want to pray with you this morning. Lord Jesus, thank you today that you are in complete control of our lives and you are in complete control of this world. I pray that as the Apostle Paul looked at his life and saw his chains and his circumstances, that he was your prisoner and that his chains were in you and that he had complete confidence that, Lord, everything that was happening in his life was under your purveyance and control I pray today as well that you will find that same strength and confidence in the Lord. May the Lord bless you and encourage you today as you dwell upon these words. And thank you so much.
for listening. The Lord bless you. We'll see you next Sunday morning live, 10.30 a.m. online. Please follow on, uh, on our website for any announcements that we might be making. And thank you for your time, and may the Lord richly bless you this week. Amen.